think it's important for us to be able to gauge how the conversation is going and to know that it's okay to step away from a conversation if it's heading in a direction that's uncomfortable or it's starting to get too hostile. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Vegan Women Collective podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Marsh, and I'm one of the co-founders of the Vegan Women Collective, an organization that highlights and supports the activism and entrepreneurship of vegan women through panels, workshops, and now a super great podcast. I'm so excited to have you with me for this first episode with Dr. Ash Nayate, who you might know as the vegan neuropsychologist as per her Facebook and Instagram page. Um, Ash is a vegan activist as well as a clinical psychologist and she creates a lot of content around self-care and mental health specifically through the lens of her own vegan activism. Ash and I chatted about heaps of things including mentally preparing for the holidays and the process around consciously deciding to surround yourself with non-vegans and how to make that easier for yourself. We also talked about her vegan family and raising a vegan child in a non-vegan world. Ash published a book earlier this year that is called Staying Positive in a Fucked Up World and she was kind enough to give us a copy to give away to one of our listeners. So we are running this competition from our Instagram page which is at Vegan Women Collective. Uh, so head there to check out how you can win this incredible and super helpful book. Um, now I really do hope you enjoy your chat and that you take a lot out of it as I definitely did. I'm excited. Welcome to episode one. Let's get to it. Welcome, Ash. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Basically, I just kind of wanted to have a conversation with you about how you got into this work. So first things first, what was your your journey into veganism? Because I don't believe you were born a vegan like most of us. No, I spent the first 26, 27 years of my life eating animals and animal products and not even thinking about where they came from. And it's quite interesting. Um, I became vegan overnight after watching Earthlings. And what got me watching Earthlings, it was because I used to I used to eat a lot of tuna fish. Okay. And um, someone had said to me, oh, are you sure that that's really healthy because of the mercury? And I put on my scientific hat and said, I'm going to prove you wrong. And so I started looking at the research and I realized actually there's some merit to the problems with fish yeah. consumption and and certainly heavy metals and other things. And then I came across, um, it's a PETA video, very short film called Meet Your Meat. Okay. And from there, uh, I came across Earthlings and I watched Earthlings in four installments over the course of a day. And I was just in tears, just uh. absolutely floored by how animals were treated. And I didn't even realize it for food, for entertainment, for clothing, medical testing. And um, yeah, it was an overnight I was an overnight vegan. So were you already studying to become a neuropsychologist when you did the switch? or I was already a practicing neuropsychologist. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought it had been longer than that. So how long have you been a vegan? I've been vegan for 10 years. Oh, okay. And I've been a fully-fledged neuropsychologist for about 12 years. Wow. Mm. What excites me about the content that you put out there is that it's so well-researched. And because you have all of that background and those studies that you've done and that you continuously put out there. It's just, I find it great and really compelling. So what then, once you had made the switch, made you decide to advocate within that space of the neuropsychologist side related to the veganism? Yeah, it's a good question. It was almost by accident because I was 
I was a neuropsychologist sort of in my as my day job yeah. and then I was doing some ad- advocacy and activism on the side like many of us do we work full time and then after hours we yeah. do our activism and then I um a few years into it all people started coming up to me because they were really struggling with their mental health they were str- they were experiencing trauma or symptoms of trauma and they found it quite useful to um, to know exactly what was going on for them and I would, would explain it in terms of, look, this is how your brain responds. It's a very natural and healthy response to what you're experiencing. And it was just more and more people um, coming, maybe coming to me or maybe I was just more aware of it, of how big of a problem this was in our community. And, of course, veganism has been growing exponentially. So the more people who are becoming vegan and the more people who are doing activism, the more we're seeing some of these problems. So uh, I I guess it's an area that found me rather than me going out and finding it. And I'm so grateful. That's so good. So do you also do consult with vegans just one-on-one in regards Mm -hmm. to their mental health? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So quite often the things that I share online are things that are helpful from a more of a general perspective. That's what science is It's and psychology is. It's, it's about generally this is how one's brain works and generally speaking this is how you can overcome challenges. The benefit of one-on-one work is actually being able to delve into a specific individual's um, challenges and their issues, their background, you know, our upbringing affects the way that we think as adults and the way that we behave. So it's really good to be able to work with people one-on-one. So I do consult. It's not just vegans and activists who contact me. It's probably about, I'd say it's about 50-50. So half of it is vegans and, and um, animal rights activists and the other half would be people who have come across me through other channels so there are some things I promote for example like I'm quite an advocate of um, alternative schooling oh yeah like homeschooling and unschooling and so I've had so some of my clients have found me through those channels oh great Uh, and uh, I also work with families so I get a lot of um, referrals from say child psychiatrists other psychologists you have a son I do and do you does that mean that you're homeschooling him or is does he go to an alternative school or so he's four yeah um so technically oh, so speaking, not yet. he's so not, not in school yeah, he yet. technically he's not school <laughs> no, age, fair enough <laughs> but when you when you think about it for the first four to five years of our lives we are all homeschooled we're yeah. all unschooled. One hundred percent. Yeah, the learning is so natural. So what he is, um, the the lifestyle he's currently living in terms of his education, that's simply going to continue. Okay. Um, and there's a quite a big homeschooling and unschooling community in in Australia, oh, particularly really? in Victoria. Yeah, and so it's just a matter of you know registering with the department and paperwork and things like that. Because that's one of the questions that I ask sometimes of myself is also like if I had kids. I've seen stuff online where people are like, oh. I will let my kid eat non-vegan food when he goes or she goes to a party to uh, with friends because I don't want to impose my views. How do you deal with that? I know that's not necessarily what we were going to talk about, that's but <laughs> I just feel like it's part of the vegan journey. Like it's part of the vegan questions that we ask ourselves. Is that something that you come across? Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with the beliefs of the parent because 
you know, when I first became vegan, I was very much in that mindset of, okay, this is something I'm doing and I'm just going to do it and um, I'm not going to force force it on anyone because I don't want to come across as preachy. And then I very, very quickly changed that to um, thinking about, okay, let's, let's think about speciesism. Let's think about the ethics of this. Um, it's not okay to treat animals this way and I need to be a more vocal advocate and not be worried about coming across as as preachy Yeah. because there are always going to be people who think that you're preachy even when you're not. Exactly. So it's a little bit about letting go of what other people think and I'd say for some parents they do have that um, mindset of uh, not wanting to impose their views on other people. When it comes to our children, though, we impose our views on our kids anyway. Yeah. And what's interesting, because our kids will never be carbon copies of us. So the way that we uh, the way that we express our beliefs, not just through words, but through our behavior as well, goes to shape their behavior. So a classic example would be a, a child who grows up in a home with an alcoholic parent or a parent who is abusing alcohol. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some people would think, okay, this means that the child is going to go on to abuse alcohol, but not necessarily. Sometimes that child becomes the complete opposite of that and will actually abstain from alcohol completely because they've seen what it can do. Yeah. So that's how the upbringing will shape a child. They're not necessarily going to be our copies. And when it comes to something like veganism, I think to myself, well... I wouldn't let my child drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes. I mean, when they get into the teen years, it's a bit of a different story. And I'm happy to talk about the teenage rebellion. Um, but certainly for my four-year-old, I wouldn't. if he said to me, Mum, I want to try some cigarettes, I'm not going to let him do that. And if, if he said, I want to try alcohol, I'm not going to let him do that either. So why would I say that it's okay to consume animal products we know how harmful it is to health and more than that as an ethical vegan it would be hypocritical of me to say that I sanction his choice to eat animals yeah or the choice of others to bring these things to the table and for him to be like it's okay you're not at home just adapt to what society wants you to do absolutely yeah so that's I think that's a good segue into family and family behavior. One of the reasons why I really wanted us to um, talk before the holidays was vegans, I think, perceive the holidays as being a, a time that can be stressful and also somewhat scary and a little bit disconnected because you have to go in your family and or, or you have to hang out with people and it's supposed to be a joyous time, but then most of them are probably not vegan. And so that can create tensions so what kind of work do you put out there in regards to that or do you see that as an actual trend and it's interesting isn't it that the holidays are synonymous with spending time with family uh because not everybody wants to do that and not everybody has a blood family with with whom to spend time family's not always blood either because we all have our vegan family don't we and that's not to say that 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 would be all vegans because we there are certain vegan people who we might find ourselves resonating with more than others Uh, and it's interesting that there is this societal expectation which I always think it's good just to step back for a moment and think why am I acting in the way that I'm acting why do I feel compelled to go to this event. And I think when we make decisions intentionally 
rather than doing it automatically, I think it actually makes the process a lot easier. And I'll give you an example because there might be a family event and it's at your grandmother's house and you absolutely love your grandma. She doesn't get veganism at all. You know, she's not really one to cater to vegans and make vegan food. However, you love your grandmother and you you know that you maybe don't have that many Christmases left with her and you want to go to this event, you want to support her, you want to show your love in that way. And so I think that when we think about the decision making and we consciously decide that, yes, I'm going to this event because I want to support my grandmother, then it can help with the subsequent steps. So then we can decide, okay, how can I support my grandmother and also act in a way that's in accordance with my value. And so how can people prepare? Because like, if you do end up deciding, yes, I'm going to attend that event, I've made the conscious decision that this is right for me, this is in accordance with what I want to do and and be in the presence of these people. But you do know that when you get there, there will be conflict or there might be some Mm -hmm. kind of confrontation or are people questioning your beliefs? How would you say people can prepare for those? Is it rereading fact sheets or rehearsing in your head things that you want to say and how you're going to say them like what would you suggest yeah I actually think rehearsing is a really good one because we can usually predict the sorts of questions we're going to get and one of them might be how come you're not eating x y and z on the table and I think having a go-to response that's very simple very succinct and it might be something like I don't eat anything that comes from an animal as simple as that and then it does invite questions um, and people who are genuinely curious you that that comes out fairly quickly I think versus people who are just trying to cause trouble Um, I think keeping your answers truthful and succinct and then I think it's important for us to be able to gauge how the conversation is going and to know that it's okay to step away from a conversation if it's heading in a direction that's uncomfortable or it's starting to get too hostile and especially around meal times and especially when people are actually eating animal products I would suggest not having a conversation at that time because the chances are that your conversation partner is actually in the midst of consuming something that comes from an animal and if you start talking about the details of how that particular product got on their plate all that's going to happen is you're going to elicit defensiveness, a lot of shame, and that's just not a good platform on which to have a conversation if you're trying to get them to empathise. That's, I mean, that's really good advice. I feel that is true. And as a vegan, you would also feel like these are the moment where your activism might be heightened because you're looking at what the other person is doing through your lens and Mm. you're just like, now you need to understand how this is happening now while you're doing it. But knowing that that can be probably the, the moment that creates the most sensitive responses is probably really beneficial for people. That's a real, it's, I did not, I had never thought about that. So I think that that's wonderful. That's yeah. good to know. Thank you. I, I think that there are certain things it's important for us to know about psychology and activism shouldn't be a spray and pray kind of approach where we just say the same thing to every single person and just hope that it lands. I think it needs to be more targeted than that. So if I'm having a conversation with my 20-year-old cousin 
who is male, that conversation is going to look really different to a conversation I have with my aunt who's in her 60s. Yeah. Because they have different backgrounds, they have different beliefs, they have different priorities. And it's a little bit like that with individual people. If there's a person and you know that they're on the verge of becoming vegan, then it's good to know what are the best times or the best ways to engage with them so you can elicit the empathy that you're looking for. Because when a person is feeling shamed, they, they can't feel empathy at the same time. The two states are incompatible. It's like running and sleeping. You can't do both. So, so some people would have this view of you have to advocate all the time. Every sentence you say needs to be advocating for animals. And I really disagree with that because if we can be discerning about the right time to communicate with someone, and if they're stuffing a piece of dead chicken flesh in their mouth, yeah. that's not the time to tell them what happened to that chicken. It's going to be afterwards. So we might say to them, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this. Let's chat about it later after our meal. Or how about I send you some stuff and you might send them a link or tag them in something on Facebook. Well, one strategy that I've seen other people do and it seems to be quite common in Facebook groups is people say, bring heaps of food so that you can share. Bring all of those vegan options and some, some of them specialized products. And I always wonder... I feel some of some of the products that we can bring, so like the mock meats and things like that, those can create other types of questions. So what would you say? So I would say to people who are planning on bringing food, again, be deliberate about why are you choosing this food? Now, if you're bringing something that's an omni-sub, which I, so a substitute yeah, for yeah. an animal product, if you're bringing omni-subs, be clear on why you're bringing that and also be mindful that you probably will get questions like why are you bringing this cheesecake it's not cheesecake because there's no cheese in it and uh, be prepared for fielding some of those questions and I think the reason why vegans would bring omnisubs to a family event is to show that yes you can still have the texture of a burger or the texture of a hot dog without animals having to be harmed the good thing is that these vegan products even in te 10 years, and 10 years is really not that long, in 10 years the, the market has just exploded and there are so many products that even I eat them and I'm just freaking out a little bit because it, I just think to myself, is this definitely vegan even though I bought the box I know it's vegan I feel like that's a common occurrence for <laughs> most of us which is like um, the first time for me I had a hot dog and I got angry mm. I got angry at the person because they told me it was a vegan hot dog and I was like this is not a vegan hot dog why did you lie to me why are you serving me this meat product and this person was like no no it is a vegan sausage let me get the package and I went from feeling really kind of really angry to being so surprised and excited and being like oh my god this is the future like even me as a vegan I was fooled and I thought this was and that was like six years ago or maybe a little more so clearly it must be even crazier now like just the texture and the, the looks and the things that they're doing with the beet juice for the impossible yeah. burgers like yeah i had a um i had a beyond burger the other day and it just it really freaked me out because <laughs> i just it was yeah it was it was very very um animal flesh like so then the interesting thing is is that for a lot of these products if we 
if we just had them on a table um, and no labels or anything, maybe apart from allergens, no labels, our family and friends wouldn't even know that they're vegan. And I think that's really, I actually think that's really important. And again, food allergies aside, because that's, it's important to disclose that. I actually think it's good to not be too upfront about it being vegan. Like we're not going to put a big thing saying these this is a plate of vegan hot dogs because for a lot of non-vegans just that word vegan is very off-putting and what I find is when we taste a food generally we focus on what we like about it you know we like the texture and there's with every food there's always going to be some negative but we tend to focus on the positive because food is something we all love and we all enjoy and we get a lot of pleasure from it soon as you put the word vegan in front of it, before the person's even taken a bite, they're already in the mindset of, let me find what's wrong with this. So they'll take a bite of a vegan cupcake and they'll say, oh, it's too dry. Oh, no, it's nothing compares to real milk chocolate. And <laughs> they'll always find something that's not right. Because we can always, we can see what's wrong or we can see what's right. And so it's usually after the fact. Did you like the cupcakes? Yeah, I made them. And they say, wait, you made them? I say, yeah, they're vegan. I do it at my workplace all the time. I bring, um, again, baked goods, cupcakes and things. And it's just a, one of those things, you know, someone's going away. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll say, yeah, I'll bring some cupcakes and I'll bring enough for everyone and we all share them. And then someone will say, oh, I love the recipe for this. And I go, here it is. And <laughs> I'll say, see, and it's good for everyone because there's no dairy, there's no eggs. I'll go back to you having your child in your family. How has that been received? That Because I know your husband is vegan mm-hmm. as well. Um that you're kind of like the vegan unit Mm -hmm. that comes to the family gatherings. How is that perceived or received? I would believe that it's normalized by now because Mm. you've been vegan for so long. But um, at first, how did it, how was that in your family? How was it received? Yeah, when I first became vegan, so I became vegan and then my husband became vegan about three or four years later. So when it was just me, uh, I never expected anyone to um, cater for me or uh, accommodate me in any way. So I used to bring my own food to everything. And yeah, it was there were some questions, especially from my nephews, you know, well, how come you're eating that and we're all eating this? And again, you know, I was very early on, I was very conscious of, oh, I don't want to come across as pushy. So I would just, I don't even know what I said. I just probably made something up. Then my husband became vegan and I feel like the two of us really paved the way with our families and we set the boundaries about what we find acceptable or not. So as an example, we don't allow any animal products in our home. Yeah, we'll same go, here. Yeah. Um, and so if someone comes to a house and if I offer them you know, a cup of tea or coffee and then they say they want cow's milk, can are we willing to give them some cow's milk I'll say no because I'm not going to purchase cow's milk for you and I don't believe it and um and so by the time my son came along because he's he's only four and my husband and I we've been vegan for 10 and 7 years respectively so um I feel like a lot of that hard work was done yeah and so by the time he came along he's never had to really deal with any kind of backlash um and actually my son's pretty vocal and he's, he's very mindful that there are foods that people will offer him that are not vegan. So he always asks, is it vegan? And even when we're not around, as in his parents are not That's around, so he, he still does, yeah. which is, is just very heartwarming to see. Definitely. That's fantastic. 
oh, I, I had something that popped in mind. Because you do bring him to all of the marches and everything. And is it because you you personally believe that marching and those kinds of activism are a huge part of being a vegan? Or when and how did you make the decision that you were going to bring him to the marches? We started bringing him when he started asking to come. Okay. So he was two years old oh, when great. he started to ask to come. So he would he knew that every so often mum or dad would go somewhere and do something and he was obviously full of questions about it when we came back and then the day came when he said that he wants to come too and we explained to him I think it was a one of the um save rallies at Burke Street Mall okay and we explained to him this is what happens is it something um you know are you prepared that that this is something you want to do and he said yes and he came along and and ever since then he's been really keen to come to every activism event that we go to and there are some things that are not appropriate for him and so for instance going to a vigil at a slaughterhouse I'll I don't believe it's appropriate at this age for him to be going definitely so I won't take him to that I'll certainly let him know what I'm doing and why I don't think it's appropriate yeah Um, and it's the same with like um, any any graphic footage that I choose to watch You know, I'll do that away from him. Definitely. uh, Because I don't think it's appropriate for him to see that. Uh, uh, And every parent will make their own decision for their children. And so with things like marches, uh, because it's something that has such a, there's such a community spirit in going to to marches. And there are some things that are relatively non-confrontational. So even at a march, you know, we're not going to stand near the TV screens that are showing graphic footage and we'll stand maybe towards the middle or towards the back and he'll he likes to hold a sign and he likes to chant and you know, get get involved. He likes to wear the vegan shirts yeah. and sort of just be part of this enormous movement and you know we're just happy to just be there really and participate that's so great yeah. it's so heartwarming um i've met ash's son and he's lovely <laughs> he's a little ball of love um and so what made you decide to write a book yeah i made the decision about two years ago um and so my goal for 2017 was to write the book yeah and then the first half of 2018 was just the publishing process which took longer than I realized. I think right. it always does. Uh, and the reason for writing the book was because I found myself coming across the same sorts of uh, issues again and again. And so the the book is really designed for people who do uh, need support. They perhaps don't live in Melbourne or they don't have the means to access like private consultations with anyone. They need something And it's going to help them understand why they feel the way they feel, why they think the way they think, and why others feel and think the way they do. All right, that's great. Yeah, that was pretty much the um, the driving force behind the book. So it was it's intended to be for activists. It's very much geared. I mean, a lot of the stories in there are my own experiences, which is predominantly animal activism. Uh, the book itself is geared towards all forms of activism so whether you're an activist for um, same-sex marriage for in uh, climate change um, you want to end racism sexism um, you, you're promoting like anti-consumerism and um, zero waste those sorts of things what I think is really valuable about the book and the fact that it's written by a vegan and with your studies and experience is just 
so much more valuable for me as I'm also someone that studied and I really like academia. Mm. Um, I don't think that your book is written in that way, but it's just good to know that you have all of this background. You have all of this understanding that you're probably, you know, unconsciously putting into your content. It's really fantastic that you took the time to put it out there. Thank you. I think that you're becoming definitely a very strong face of the vegan movement here in Melbourne. You did uh, roundtables about vegan health. Do you feel that's something that a lot of people are, are researching, the healthy element to veganism and how it can be positive from a health perspective? Do you think more people are researching this? Because I feel like before it was a lot of ethical vegan And now there's more vegan for health reasons. So how do you see them kind of coming together and advocating for both the health element and the ethical side? Yeah, there, there's definitely a huge health m movement. And I would say that a lot of the people who come into this lifestyle for health reasons, they probably start off plant-based. And then they learn about the ethical side of things. So I've always felt that people come to veganism for multiple reasons. Ethics is what will keep them there. Because if people are health vegans, if there is even is such a thing, if people are health vegans, they're not necessarily um, connecting with that ethical side. And when we do things for our own personal health and our own personal benefit rather than for a greater good, I think it's much easier to fall off the wagon or make these little adjustments where we say, oh, you know what, occasionally having honey, yeah, that's okay. Backyard eggs, well, they're backyard and the hens are treated well, so that's okay. And I feel that there's a lot of room there for people to – there's lots of avenues where people can sort of slide away from this idea of veganism. Whereas with something that's ethically driven – It's, pr it's a pretty much an abolitionist stance. And that's certainly the stance that I have, which is Definitely. I believe that speciesism is wrong, whether it's food, whether it's clothing, fashion, cosmetics, all of these things. So for anyone who does come into it for health reasons, and there's so many health reasons to come into veganism, I would say please also connect with the ethical aspects. I do agree with you that people can give themselves that leeway sometimes and it's just it does nothing good for the movement, especially when that happens in public, mm. when that happens with other people that are not vegan and they're just like, oh, I have a vegan friend and but she eats eggs once yeah. in a while and I feel like that's so damaging. It is. You know, it's interesting because some people say that, oh, that's a very militant approach to veganism. But it's not because veganism, it's simply recognizing the meaning of a word. You know, it's kind of like someone who calls themselves celiac and then they occasionally eat gluten containing foods. It destroys the integrity of the word celiac. And unless you have a strong stance with firm boundaries about what veganism is, um, there's too much room for misinterpretation. And Th people can actually become really unwell because if there is someone with a severe milk protein allergy, for example, and they're in a cafe, they see it says vegan and they say, oh, vegan. So there's no dairy. No, 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 there's no dairy. Um, okay, I'll eat this. But if someone in the kitchen's been like, oh, yeah, vegans can have a little bit of milk. It's no big deal. Cross-contamination, no big deal. Yeah. Um, this could lead to someone being hospitalized or even killed. So there's actually really big consequences to this and I don't think that everyone often appreciates how big of a consequence that is because if you're have if you have an allergy to eggs 
order milk, you're going to go to vegan food as well. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And that's good that veganism has that element to where we can can kind of reel people in that way mm. a little bit just by proving that the alternatives are as good, as tasty, yeah. as what other people perceive to be like what, for example, ice cream should taste like mm. or what cupcakes, as you were saying, should taste like. Mm. So what's coming up for you? Do you have another book that you're writing or um, another event that you're advocating for? What's kind of 2019 looking like for you? Uh, 2019, at the moment, I am working on another book. I'm not going to be um, pushing myself to get it out as quickly as I did with the first one. So this one, the the working title at the moment is Raising Kids in a Fucked Up World. So it's Great. I was going <laughs> to ask you if it was about family. How fantastic. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a few projects I've been working on which will be released sort of in the next few months. Fantastic. Um, so there's so for example there's a um, plant powered parenting book that I contributed to recently. Um, so that's very exciting because there's more and more vegan families who are coming into the community, and my book, raising kids in a fucked up world, um, that's going to be more geared towards children's um, mental health and building that strength to be social justice advocates and I know that social justice sort of has a bit of a mixed uh, mixed reception I do think that this um, I do think that being an advocate for something other than ourselves and for something bigger than ourselves is one of the best ways we can become mentally healthy is there's a lot of research now about altruism and how positive it is for our mental health. And I think for young people, we have so many problems with youth mental health rate, um, mental health symptoms skyrocketing. There's issues around bullying. There's issues around um, young people not having a direction in life and then falling into habits like of drugs or crime, gambling, other things. And so I think that if we can start a movement of parents who are willing to be more conscious about their parenting and being more deliberate about not only the way they're raising their kids but also undoing some of the habits that were foisted upon them. So there's a word which you might have heard of called childism. It's a form of ageism, so where we discriminate people because of their age. There's a lot of discrimination in society against children and people just assume that children are stupid They, they assume that children don't have intelligence. They assume that children are not capable of making decisions. There are these preconceived ideas that adolescents will rebel. Like they'll go non-vegan or yeah. rebel against their vegan parents. Yeah, that's the, I think that's a really common criticism of vegan parents, which is that your child is inevitably going to rebel and start eating animal products. And I think it, not only is it incorrect, it's also incredibly damaging because there are vegan parents who will take that on board and then they'll say, okay, well, I guess I just won't be as... Um, as firm in my boundaries about veganism and I'll be relaxed and I'll introduce, you know, some ethical milk and some ethical meat and some ethical eggs because, you know what, my kid's going to rebel. And that's just not true because I think people have this fundamental misunderstanding of what rebellion is about. So in adolescence, so from, say, 10, 12 and through to about 16 or 17, there is a real shift in the way that we Uh, view ourselves and we need to create an identity that's separate from our parents and separate from the other adults around us. 
Often what that means is rejecting some of the ideals that our parents had for us. So let's say, um, again, going back to the smoking one, you know, for some for some teenagers, they rebel by smoking cigarettes. But for some teenagers who grow up in a smoking family, rebellion is not smoking yeah. cigarettes. For some teenagers, rebellion is going to university and no one else did. Um, it's breaking the imposition of some of those cultural or familial um, ideals and standards that were placed upon them. Now, the question is, okay, what is a teenager going to rebel against versus what are they not? And what we know from the literature, the scientific literature, is that we're more likely to rebel against things that don't make sense or don't have a broader cultural context. So there are a lot of young people, they'll rebel by cutting their hair in a way that their parents don't approve of. They'll get piercings, they'll get tattoos, they'll change their clothing. They will still often uphold some of the really basic tenets of of the law, right? They're not, they don't go out and start killing people. Yeah. You know, they don't go out and start stealing cars. Some do, yes. <laughs> For the most part, rebellion is a very is still very much constrained and when and that's because these um, legal issue these legal matters it's not just about the law it, they make sense why don't we kill other people because it's not the right thing to do don't steal other people's property we don't go around bullying other people because it's and we don't violate people's bodily autonomy so when we're raising children for those first 10 to 12 years when we raise them with those vegan values with the understanding of why they exist. So this is where we talk to our kids about the ethics and we talk to kids about speciesism. Those ideals will be more ingrained in them and they'll be less likely to rebel. They will still rebel against something. They have to. It's an important part of adolescence, but not veganism necessarily. Do you think that the reason why some people perceive that um, vegan children will become rebellious teenager that would then go off veganism is maybe because themselves, they would rebel. Mm -hmm. They would be like, if you impose this on me, I wouldn't do it. So your child is not going to want to do it once they know what's out there. Do you think that that probably is a little bit what's happening there? Yeah, and I think that some vegans are actually taking that on for themselves too. So you'll even hear people within the vegan community saying that your child will probably rebel. What are you going to do when your child wants to eat meat? Now, first of all, that's not an inevitability. Yeah. I know plenty of vegan children who were raised vegan from birth. They're now adults or they're very close to adulthood and they've never rebelled in that way. They've rebelled in their own way that's healthy for them. So I would um, question the inevitability of it for sure. And, and there's also, again, a right way and a wrong way to do it. If you're talking to your child about the issues that are inherent in veganism, then that's a much more open form of communication than if parents are just saying, you're vegan, that's that, with no discussion, no explanation. Your kid comes home one day and they want to talk about backyard eggs because their friend said backyard eggs are okay. Your home needs to be a space where that discussion can happen and where the parent says, okay, well, let's think about backyard eggs. What's involved there? There's still this element of the the hens having to work very hard to produce the egg. You know, it's still taking something that's not ours to take. And so the child has the opportunity to mull over this concept 
versus if you've got a parent saying, how dare you question me? Backyard eggs are not okay and that's that. That's a, that's a very different way of approaching it. It's much more dictatorial. It's what we would call an authoritarian style of parenting and that style of parenting actually is associated with a lot more rebellion than when there's this more democratic discussion. And even if the, the parent themselves is very um, has very strong boundaries about veganism, we can't assume that our children can mind read why we've adopted these values. And children, they're here to question. They're, that's their job, is to question everything, even the, the social norms that we view as the most basic and fundamental it is children's job to question that because they don't always, um, it doesn't always make sense to them, especially when they're very young. And it's because they think a bit differently to adults. And so it's having that conversation and allowing that to happen. And for parents, I think to, you know, many of us were raised with that real dictatorial style and we were told just, you have to obey. You have to do what your parents tell you to do. And we all rebelled against that as well. So I think that it's a cultural shift where we stop doing what we know doesn't work. Authoritarian parenting doesn't work. It's harmful to children's mental health. We know that. It's well documented. And these are some of the things that I want to put in my next book. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah, because I think it's important to break down some of the culture of childism. I think that there are tools that can also be really helpful for people that are planning on having vegan children and knowing in advance that they're going to have to go through those processes and and adapting to the questions and the questions from your child, from other people and all of that. It's great. It's such fantastic content to put out there. It's so good that it's readily available or that it will become readily available. Can you demystify what happens from the non-vegan side and this tendency that non-vegans have to just come at vegans sometimes aggressively or this whole idea that vegans are just out there to damage everyone's way of life from a societal point of view in regards to mental health or or psychology why is that why do they all feel attacked all of a sudden that is one it's it's a, such a huge part of the book that i wrote um and it's you know anger is such a complex emotion because there, there's a certain anger that's a very natural and healthy form and um, what you're describing is actually a really unhealthy form of anger so when non-vegans respond to us in these very hostile ways uh un, and i'm assuming you mean unprovoked so yeah. we're not being offensive like not during a march or anything like that. or and we're not coming across as antagonistic like we're not throwing red paint on them and calling them murderers because yep. for them to respond with anger would actually be a very natural response um but certainly the anger that you're describing uh, i think it it's guilt and shame and sadness and fear that have been transmuted into anger because most of us don't know how to deal with any of those feelings but guilt and shame and sadness and fear those can be particularly hard for us to cope with the good thing about anger is that we feel very energized and very powerful so for a lot of people they transform all of their uncomfortable emotions into anger anger is where they go because they feel powerful when we're sad that that's not that's a powerless response when we feel shame that's an extremely powerless response and in fact shame is one of the most uncomfortable emotions 
And there is so much of our behavior these days that is driven by shame. So when you see entitled people um, or people who have high levels of narcissism, it's usually because there's a lot of shame underneath that. And they've flipped the switch and they've gone into complete denial mode. And just to clarify the difference between shame and guilt, guilt is I did something bad, but it implies that I can remedy that versus shame, which is I am bad. And if a person genuinely believes that they're bad within themselves, there's nothing they can do. And so if anger is their default response, it's because they don't believe that they can be vegan. They don't believe in themselves. They don't believe that they're capable of change because they, on the inside, they feel like they're broken. And so I, I always suggest to people when they're faced with that kind of hostility um, is we just need to break down step by step what's going on because other people's hostility triggers our own. Yeah. Um, other people's hostility makes us feel guilty. And that's why some vegans say, oh, I don't talk about veganism because I don't want to be preachy. It triggers our shame. It triggers fear. It triggers sadness. So it, there's a lot of emotional complex emotional interplay going on here but at the underneath it all when people are angry at you for being vegan in a way it's a good thing it's because they know on some level that their actions are not right and what we can do is reinforce the guilt we don't want to reinforce the shame but reinforce the guilt by saying your decisions up until now have been harmful to animals this is what you can do to change that moving forward. Don't have scrambled eggs on toast, have scrambled tofu on toast. Um, giving them practical ways that they can actually change their behavior and to show faith in them. You can do this. You say you don't like vegan food. Have you ever eaten a piece of watermelon? That's a that's a vegan food. You can do this. And so much of the anger that comes back at us, it's because the shame has shut them down. They're closed off to empathy, like I was saying before. Um, and those patterns of shame, unfortunately... A lot of it comes back to our upbringing. Many of us were shamed growing up. That's a That goes hand in hand with the authoritarian parenting. So if we can undo some of those habits and reflect on why we feel such shame, and then when we're out there advocating for veganism, if we can be aware of what is triggering shame, approaches that trigger shame versus approaches that uh, trigger guilt, which is a much better segue into empathy, People think guilt is bad. Guilt is not bad. We need it. And it's actually a healthy, uh, healthier response than shame because if we've done something wrong, we can remedy it. Yeah. It's funny when you have those friends that you can identify in your circle that you're just like, you're so close. Like, you, mm. you know, I can feel like I want to slightly guide you, show you the way, and now's the time. Like, almost like a roadmap. Like, now's the time for you to watch a documentary. Yeah. Now's the time to come to One March. You know, now let's go to Edgar's mission. Yeah. To kind of foster those points of making the connection. Yeah. I don't know who coined that term, the making the connection, mm. but it's so true, and it affects everything. And I feel from a psychological standpoint, I'm sure that that has a lot to do with the decision-making process, you see and you can't you can't afford for yourself, for your own personal guilt to unsee this, to choose not to see that. Would you say that, that's a, that, that making the connection is that moment where people are kind of like recognizing their guilt instead of their shame? Yes, I would. I'd, I'd even take it one step 
further because making connections is actually what defines us as a species. That's what makes us intelligent. Um, and if you compare, say, a two-year-old to a, a 22-year-old, they're very different in their level of, um, we, we call it their level of maturity because the two-year-old doesn't make those connections in the same way that an adult would. So for the person who is able to make that connection and recognise, hey, I'm breastfeeding my child, how is this different to that cow over there who's breastfeeding her cow, udder feeding her yeah. calf? And when we can make those connections, uh, that in and of itself is a sign of cognitive maturity. Then the question about what do we do with that information? That's a sign of emotional maturity. Because if we make the connection, but then we decide that we're going to let our emotional state break that apart and we become shut down or apathetic or whatever, uh, to me that's a sign of emotional immaturity. The way to respond to making the connection is to adjust your behaviour. And that was vegan neuropsychologist Dr. Ash Nayate. If you would like to get in the running to win her first book, Saying Positive in a Fucked Up World, please head to our Instagram page, which is at Vegan Women Collective, for all the details. If you liked this first episode, please subscribe to our show, rate us, and tell all of your vegan friends. The Vegan Women Collective podcast is recorded, mixed, and produced by myself, Rachel LaMarche. I wish you happy holidays, and we'll be back soon to share other inspirational vegan women's stories. Thanks again for listening. I'll talk to you soon.